Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now this doesn't sound like a good word, but it is a good word. We're starting uh, a new series uh, for the next couple weeks. As, as you know, if you've been around here for a little while, we are dropping uh, these little formation series in. So about a year and a half ago, we paused as a church and said, man, after seven years of really going hard after the mission of God here in our city, we recognize that some of the things that, and some of the ways that we're living and some of the things that we're doing are not sustainable if it's not anchored and tethered to something deeper. And though we've always been a church that cared about discipleship, we really didn't have like a clear, concrete vision for what it looked like to practice the way of Jesus together. And we did a big health survey, which we just did another one, and we'll be sharing more about those results here in the next uh, couple of months. But we did a health survey, and what we found in that survey was many of you, though you grew, grew up, I mean, if you grew up in the Midwest, it's almost synonymous with growing up around church and religion Though many of you were religious or grew up in some kind of a church environment, your actual practices of Christianity were, uh, were fairly kind of like erratic and inconsistent. And I think for a lot of us, we didn't have families and parents that, that showed us what it looked like to, to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we said, man, we really want to take the strong missional passion that we have and couple it with a strong desire for formation and get very specific about what formation looks like. And so we spent an entire fall last year. I encourage you, if you're new to our church, go back to that series and listen to the spiritual formation series because we talked about our vision for how people change, right? There's a deep, deep angst about change, right? About wanting to experience transformation. Whether you're a Christian or not, I think all of us realize we live in a very broken world and we ourselves are broken people who have brokenness, not just out there in the world, but inside of us. And so there's this deep desire to, to experience transformation, but really an inability to do that on our own without supernatural help. And so Christianity has these resources to help us grow into all that God's designed us to be as human beings. And that is the vision for spiritual formation. We, we talk about this as, uh, in this simple phrase. It's learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world, the way of Jesus being not just things that we do, but a, a way of life, a way of being that Jesus calls us to, to learn to be with him, to become like him in our character, and then to do what he said we should do, to do what Jesus actually did. So every couple of months, we spend several weeks, and we've gone through and talked about silence and solitude and sabbath we've talked about prayer we've talked about scripture right we've gone through these uh and so now we're dropping back in and we're going to be talking about the core practice of fasting now when we begin to talk about something like fasting it's really interesting because you can't talk about fasting we're actually going to be talking about uh fasting and feasting throughout this series those two have always kind of gone together but you can't talk about fasting without talking about food and we have, if we're honest, kind of an afflicted relationship with food. We have a weird relationship with food. So I, before I lived here, I lived uh, in South Florida. South Florida, uh, just north of Miami, is what you would call a beach culture, right? Like everybody's lives are organized around basically getting to the beach, right? Surfing and 
and hanging out at the beach with your kids. That's just kind of the culture of South Florida. When I moved to Indianapolis, what I noticed, this is 2011, this is right in the heart of what a lot of demographers have talked about as re-urbanization or the gentrification of cities, right? Like a lot of younger people graduate college and they, they move back to, they're moving back to cities. So many of you grew up in places like Carmel, kind of my joke in Indianapolis is like your great rebellion if you grew up in Carmel is to live in Broad Ripple, right? Which is basically just an urban version of Carmel. Uh, so it's like everybody in Broad Ripple is trying to make Broad Ripple Carmel. Everybody in Carmel is trying to make Carmel Broad Ripple. It's this weird like symbiotic relationship that we have. But what I noticed when I, when I moved back to Indianapolis and lived in a, a big metro area for the first time in my life, I grew up uh, in kind of a working class suburb in Louisville, lived in the suburbs in West Palm, and then now here living in the city for the last uh, I've lived specifically in Broderville for the last six years. What I noticed is, and what's happening in cities all over the place, is there's this kind of paradoxical rise of uh, foodie culture, right? It's all about food. We talk about living in the city, and there's kind of, on the one hand, you have food excess, right? Food excess issues. We, we have an abundance of access to not just any kind of food, but, but really good food, um, there was a, a study done a couple years ago in a book on poverty, and they talked about the difference between different socioeconomic classes. And they said, really, when it comes to uh, things like food, uh, the poor look at food and they want quantity, generally speaking. Middle class people look at food and they want quality, generally speaking. But cultural elites, and that's a lot of who lives in our cities now and who lives in Broderpool, cultural elites want something different. They want aesthetic presentation right? Aesthetic. It's all about the presentation. It's about how does it look on Instagram, right? We call this vibe. Like every time I walk into a new restaurant, people are like, it just has a vibe. You know, I'm, I'm really vibing with this place. It's like now a verb. Uh, so like my, my, uh, my wife and I went to this new, anytime a new southern place comes out, we're all in. So we went to uh, Root and Bone, which is the, like one of the newest little foodie joints here in Broderpool. And uh, I mean, they had some amazing fried chicken. It was great. But like we walk in, and the first comment that our party makes is, I just love the vibe here, right? That's, that's foodie culture. It's about the vibe, right? And we, we organize our lives around vibing with our food, right? Three meals a day, which is historically strange and an anomaly, right? We have three meals a day. We have food trucks. We have food carts. We go on food dates and coffee dates. Um, I mean, like how much of our lives, I was thinking about this, like how much of my life and our collective existence in Broderpool really revolves around food. I mean, why else would you live in a cheap apartment with like 10 roommates, right? Like, I just laugh at like, why else would you buy the house that you buy? You live in a house that's half the square footage with twice the deferred maintenance of your suburban counterparts, right? We call them charming, but it just means there's a lot of deferred maintenance on our homes and they're really small and they're really old, why do you do that? What, when you ask people why do you do that, I just, I love the neighborhood. And when they say I love the neighborhood, they don't mean like I love the cultural landmarks and I love the green. It's like I love the food and I love the fact that I can walk to this food very conveniently. It's why most of you live within walking distance of your favorite restaurant, right? That's part of why we do what we do. That's why we, I mean, people have money, right? But all their money goes to, it's like 40% of your budget is eating out and getting food, Right? Like, we eat, and then the next question we ask, like, my eight-year-old is like, what's, for, what's the next meal going to look like? Like, we're just always kind of thinking about and very aware of food. And yet it creates certain challenges. We have problems with food excess, right? Like, so I'm, uh, anytime one of my friends comes into town, take him to my favorite place here in Broderville, which is 20 Tap, right? And 
It's interesting because 20TAP is one of those establishments. It almost burned down a couple years ago. It's been around forever, like Mo and Johnny's, the Red Key Tavern, and 20TAP. If you've been around Broderpool, like when I first moved to Broderpool, it was all bars, right? Like it's not a place you go for food. It's a place you go basically to get wasted and to use Broderpool, right? Like nobody comes to the strip to like get quality food. And the motto actually when I moved to Broderpool was, we're open if you are. So I, I don't know what all that means, but that's what was going on. But I love taking people to 20TAP, and a friend of mine went there for lunch just this week, and we ordered burgers. They have really great burgers. So he gets through, and we, we have poutine, and we have burgers, and we have salads, and by the time we've eaten all this, he can't finish the other half of his burger. I then had no problem finishing mine. But um, he's much more health conscious than me, so he, we get through. And he literally, I could see, was breaking out into a moral quandary because he's on the road traveling, not from Indy, and he starts to ask me questions like, if I box this up, will you take it back to your office? And I said, no. Nobody's going to eat it back at our office. Well, if I box it up, well, can I send it home? If you know, I've got meetings all day. I have nowhere to store this food. Just leave it here. It's going to go to waste, and it's okay. Like, you need to be okay. That's just part of, like, how we do food in America. Like, some of you are like, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. No, it's just real. It's what happens. And, and so, like, he literally, this is, this is what he did. He boxed his food up. He took it into my car and then proceeded to leave it in my car and drive back to Louisville. Like, that's the, that's the cycle of, like, guilt and anxiety that we feel. Because the other side of food excess and, and food consumption is also the rise of food disparity. Right? We have a massive rise of food disparity in our neighborhood. 200,000 people in Marion County alone live in a food desert. A food desert is essentially an area where you have low income and low food access in terms of healthy fruits and vegetables, right? So literally from 38th Street all the way down to 16th Street, you cannot find a healthy grocery store. That, that is called a food desert. 70% of census tracts in Marion County qualify. Think about that. Qualify as food deserts. And if you look at the areas, like Broderpool's the only white one on the north side of the city. And then you have purple all the way down to downtown. It's really fascinating. I actually meant to put that up this morning. So the result is we have, as a culture a very afflicted relationship with food and with our bodies. We see, uh, we kind of cycle between what I'll call pure hedonism and radical asceticism. And that's why, like, between f- these rhythms of, like, feasting and fasting, between hedonism and asceticism, between pleasure and then guilt about enjoying those things that we just consumed. That's, and so we've seen this, this rise also in the last couple of years of non-religious fasting. Have you noticed this? It's like, a, it's like all the rage. Like if you look at the New York Times, you read The Atlantic, you read any, like everybody's put, people putting out books on like 5-2 diets and every other day diets, ketogenic diets and fasting programs. It's called intermittent fasting, right? And a lot of you have experimented with that. You, you go for certain days, like maybe you have one day where you just can eat anything you want and then on the next day, you have a 75% calorie restriction or reduction, and then you feast, and then you alternate, and it's supposed to help you with some different health benefits. It's tied to longer life, and just there's a lot of studies out there being done on this, and there's a lot of uh, fanatics on both sides, right? Some people think this is really good. Some people think this is really terrible. Doctors are kind of uh, split on how to even talk about it and encourage people. My point is, in all of this, is to talk about fasting is to enter into very deep waters, because food is never just about food. Food is about our bodies, and our bodies, the Bible says, 
ultimately are about God, about what it means to be human, what it means to flourish, what it means to thrive. So here's the thing with fasting. We're going to spend four weeks talking about this, but I believe that fasting is one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, and underutilized practices for disciples of Jesus. There's a lot of confusion, e- confusion even within the church over fasting. Some of us think of fasting, and it's like, yeah, I'll fast when it comes to a diet, but not when it comes to Jesus, because that's legalism. Like, for some of us, it's tied to legalism and ritualism, this radical asceticism, like a lot of the uh, early Christians, uh, particularly those who grew up in privilege, they would often leave their families, and they would leave their lives, and they would go out into the desert, and they would kind of like buffet their bodies, beat their bodies, discipline their bodies for long periods of time out of a sense of duty and obligation. And so there's like this kind of tie that we have to thinking, well, that's only for monks, that's only for ascetics, that's only for radicals, and I don't want to be one of those people. So uh, over time, I think we've just lost the uh, importance and the centrality of fasting in the life of Jesus. And I'll say this for myself, I don't like fasting. I, I can't tell you the last time, it's been years since I've intentionally fasted for God, not for health reasons, but actually for the purpose of drawing near to God. So I'm saying this is a person who's recognizing and seeing, even in my own life, coming back from sabbatical, the need to embrace this. And we come up on the season of Lent, and we're going to be encouraging us as a church to fast together. So we want to do this series so that we understand why and what fasting is and what it's not and why we do it. And I want to encourage us to consider it. It's not a command. We'll talk about that. But it is, I believe, uh, an essential practice. It could be an invitation for some of us uh, in our uh, attempts to draw near to God. So two questions we want to ask here uh, briefly. What is fasting and why do we fast? What is fasting and why do we fast? Before we get into um, what fasting is, let me just say a word about what fasting is not, okay? Fasting is not the same thing as abstinence. Biblical fasting is not the same thing as abstinence, right? So some people will say, well, for Lent, I'm giving up alcohol or I'm giving up chocolate or I'm giving up... Uh, you know, dessert, I'm giving up social media. We talk about social media fasts. Okay, that's not fasting per se. Like, that's good. It's good that you want to give those things up. But in the Bible, fasting is not taking a particular category of our lives and abstaining or refraining from engaging in those activities. Okay, so it's not abstinence. It's also not something that we do as a health fad. Okay, it's not the same thing as intermittent fasting. It's not the same thing as cleansing or a detox or weight loss or trying to get your ketogens going, like burning in your body, that's, that's not, it's not a health fad, okay? Um, again, there's overlap in what's happening there. The impulse comes, I believe, from uh, God, but it's not always the same. So what is fasting then? Fasting is simply not eating food for a period of time in order to feast on God's presence, biblically speaking. It is not eating food. So it's not just abstaining from social media or uh, you know, a particular uh, TV show or Netflix or whatever. It is actually physically not eating food for a period of time in order to feast on God. So it's not just asceticism. It is asceticism with a spiritual purpose, namely to deepen our hunger for God. Let me give you some other people who've talked about this uh, in some ways that may be more helpful. Scott McKnight, New Testament uh, theologian, says this, fasting is the natural inevitable response of a person to a grievous sacred moment in life. John Piper has a great book on fasting, one of the best actually, and he says fasting is a whole body hungering for God. 
Dallas Willard, the great uh, spiritual formation writer, says, fasting into our Lord is therefore feasting, feasting on him and on doing his will. Now, there are different kinds of fasting, different types of fasting. When we talk about what fasting is and what's not, uh, there's the absolute fast first. The absolute fast is what we see on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the Jewish community once a year. Um, we'll talk more about this. They would gather together, and they would stop to respond to the gravity of their sin against a holy God. And they would engage in what's called an absolute fast, which means no food or water for some period of time, usually 24 hours. Now, I want to encourage you, if you are like the kind of person that like, you like a challenge, and you're like, I'm going to go fast this week and do something crazy for God, please don't just jump into an absolute fast. Like, it's very dangerous, and you should, you should consult a medical professional and talk to some people before you just start experimenting uh, radically there. So there's the absolute fast. There's the normal fast, which is just no food and what you might call a liquid fast or a water fast or a juice fast or something like that. And then there's the partial fast, and I call it fast just because that's kind of fast because that's what people call it. This is more your classic, like I'm giving up a particular category of food or liquid or uh, some kind of media or something. That's a partial fast. You hear people talking about uh, the Daniel fast, okay, which is actually kind of a misnomer. It's not a fast. If you read the book of Daniel, he wasn't fasting. He was abstaining from uh, meats and, and certain things, but it's never called a fast. He fasts later in Daniel, but um, a partial fast would be more along those lines. Now, fasting has a rich history um, in the life of God's people, and this is where I want us to see ourselves and the possibilities for fasting as it's been utilized as a resource for Christians in the history of our faith. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find um, a character in the Bible or a spiritual writer who didn't have fasting at the core of their uh, practice of the life of Jesus. Scripture's loaded with personal examples, corporate examples of fasting. I mean, personally, you see Moses, Elijah, David, Hannah, Anna in the New Testament, all kinds of different characters fasting personally before God. You see it corporately through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Joel. There's fasts that are called for where people come together collectively and support each other in a national fast. The Jews we know fasted in the days of Jesus, and the Pharisees in particular fasted Mondays and Thursdays twice a week. You can hear about that in the prayer of the Pharisee, where he's kind of uh, self-righteously saying, oh God, I'm glad I'm not like them. I fast twice a week. Okay, we know that that was a common practice. They would typically fast for 12 hours, evening meal to evening meal. They would break their fast after the sun went down each night, uh, which would be really great here uh, in the winter, not so great in the summers. <laughs> Uh, early Christians modified that practice, and they fasted together on Wednesdays and Fridays. They called these stationary fasts. The word station in Latin comes from the word for cohort, right? So they do this together. They fasted after their conversion. You see this in the life of Paul in the New Testament, who fasted after he became a disciple of Jesus. And actually, during preparation for baptism in Easter season, one of the things they would do leading up was to, was to cleanse themselves and prepare themselves for God by fasting uh, they followed a church calendar very early on in the life of the, uh, the body of Christ, the Catholic lower sea body of Christ. They followed a church calendar that included alternating seasons of fasting during Lent, some for a couple weeks, some for as much as six weeks. And then they would feast, uh, and they patterned this after the Old Testament feast and the Old Testament rhythms of fasting and feasting. They didn't fast on Sabbath, which is the day they celebrated uh, creation, God's creative work, nor did they fast on Sundays because they wanted it to be a day of, of resurrection joy, not a day of sobriety and austerity. Um, after the Protestant Reformation, really things begin to change. So if you grew up Catholic, 
Uh, maybe you don't know this, there was a split in the church uh, a couple hundred years ago. We call that the Protestant Reformation. Some people call it the, the, the church divorce. Um, and basically, you had Luther and Calvin and others that broke away because they saw those pra- a lot of the practices as rituals that were dead and empty and were leading people away from God. Uh, however you kind of see that, my point is many Christians after the Reformation began to take up those same ideas and wanted to distance themselves from what they perceived to be the legalism of Roman Catholicism. And so you'll hear people say that today. If you say, well, I'm fasting, they'll say, well, isn't that a Catholic thing? No, it's actually a Christian thing that's been going on long before uh, it was associated negatively with the Catholic Church. And so gradually, fasting fell out of prominence as a core spiritual discipline, all the way up really until John Wesley. Some of you guys grew up in a Methodist church. You grew up in a Wesleyan church. There's all kinds of, I mean, John Wesley and his disciples basically had like revivals all throughout the Indianapolis area. Many Methodist churches were started here. John Wesley lamented even in his own day, he was a Brit who came over to America to look at and kind of evaluate the health of the Methodist movement. And here's what he says uh, about it. It just gives you an idea of how seriously people took fasting. He says, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists so-called, right, both in England and Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week, as all the stricter Pharisees did, that they do not fast twice in the month. Uh Uh-oh. Yay, are there not some of you who do not fast one day from the beginning of the year to the end? Since according to this, the man that never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man that never prays. Dang, John. I'm like, was he hangry? He must have been fasting when he wrote this. Like, he, something was off, right? Like, but he so, so saw this as core to the life of a follower of Jesus. He would even question your spirituality if you weren't fasting on a regular basis. So that's what fasting meant to kind of the early church. Now the question then for us is why should we fast? Right, because as we're going to see here in just a second, it's, it's easy for us to kind of acknowledge that we need to fast maybe or feel that invitation, but uh, it's also easy for our motivations to get twisted up. And that's why people often react, because they see the, the abuse, they see the negatives, and maybe they've grown up in a home that was very strict and very legalistic and very rule-oriented, and so it's easy to see kind of the negatives without being motivated by a bigger vision for this, right? We know that the why, Simon Sinek has drilled this into this, like the why matters more than the what and the how, right? And so we need to recapture a vision for why would we, why would we do this to our bodies? Why would we do this with food? What's the significance of it? And that brings us back to Matthew chapter 4. We see that Jesus fasted, right? This was something that Jesus likely did regularly in Matthew chapter 4. I think it's not insignificant that right before the beginning and the launch of his public ministry, Jesus doesn't get on, he could have started Instagram, I guess, doesn't get on Instagram and start trying to become an influencer and like, you know, launching a brand. Like, there's a lot of things Jesus could have done at the beginning of his ministry. The most important thing he thought that he should do is fast. Again, it was just so second nature being a Jew and being being a follower of the Father that Jesus would would fast. It's significant that he, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and his response is not just to pray, but it's to fast. Jesus, now think about this, coming in the line of the other great prophets, Moses fasted for 40 days. Moses is the one who gives us the law. Elijah, the great prophet who gives us the prophetic, a lot of the prophetic 
uh, uh, impulse. He fasted for 40 days. Jesus bringing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, fasts for 40 days. The three 40-day fasts that we have in front of us in the Bible. Jesus here is doing something beyond just giving us like a diet loss plan. This is not Jesus going, you know what, I'm getting a little bit soft in the midsection. I need to like go do some intermittent fasting, right? Jesus here is reenacting for us and redeeming the original failures of the, of the first Adam and of Israel, God's people, right? When he steps out into the wilderness, he steps out into the desert. He steps out as the true and better Adam, as the true and better Israel, and he's redeeming the failures of idolatry. Interestingly enough, and we'll talk about this next week, all centered around food. Some of the greatest temptations in the Bible deal with, and some of the most cataclysmic failures have to do with food. Adam and Eve, anybody in the garden? God's people in the wilderness, food. So we don't just have food issues. It's not an American problem. It's a human problem. It's a body image problem oftentimes. We'll talk about that next week. But Jesus here is redeeming those things that fractured our communion with God and unleashed chaos and injustice and brokenness in the human community. So Jesus' refusal to feast on anything other than the Father's words and the Father's presence to satisfy the deepest hungers of his soul thus brings about life instead of death for those who choose to trust in him. So what Jesus is doing in fasting, what we are supposed to be learning in fasting, is learning that hungering and feasting on God's presence is the secret to true life and power in the world. That's what Jesus is showing us here in this moment, that God is inviting us to say no to lesser and legitimate pleasures and desires and delights, to say a bigger yes to the greatest pleasures and desires and delights, namely God's presence. He wants us to learn to value his presence more than the good gifts that he gives us. And what's interesting here, the paradox here, the tension here, is that when Jesus is at his weakest physically, he's at his strongest holistically, spiritually. He's hungry, right? He's a man. He's hungry God doesn't obliterate his humanity. He doesn't obliterate his desires. But as his body is growing weaker, his spirit, his person is growing stronger. He's growing more resilient in his embodied existence. And it will be the fuel then for the power that God gives him in his ministry in the world for the next three and a half years. That's why it's significant that we see the, the importance of Jesus' fasting. You go on Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon that he preached, he talks about fasting as one of the three core disciplines. He says, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give to the poor. Those are core disciplines. The only three that Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount, one of them is fasting. And so what Jesus is telling us, I think, he'll go on in Matthew 9 to say, my followers actually don't fast now while they're with me. But when I leave, they will fast, right? When I leave, my disciples will hunger again for my presence. And so I think you could say here that Jesus assumes his disciples will fast. Now, there's no command in the Bible that says, thou shalt fast. But what we do see, I think, is an assumption that his followers will fast. It's central to the life of a healthy disciple. And what I love about Matthew chapter 6, if you read it, he talks about hypocrisy. 
he talks about the people who put on a show and they, they're all gloomy and they're, you know, letting everybody know. They're like tooting a horn, you know, hey, I'm fasting and it's terrible and oh my gosh, it's awful. Like, I was reading all kinds of uh, non-religious fasting articles and uh, like the Telegraph and Atlantic and everybody talks about how terrible fasting is. And I'm like, yeah, if I don't believe in God, it is terrible. It's terrible. It's hard enough if you're a follower of Jesus, but if I, there's no like ultimate purpose for it. it awful, right? And so Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrite. He doesn't say don't fast. He says, don't do it this way. And what I love is just this realism that Jesus assumes we're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. Fasting is hard. Fasting is difficult, right? It's going to be abused. It's going to be misunderstood. It's going to be misappropriated, but that doesn't mean we stop doing it. It means we learn to do it the right way. The first time I went on a, uh, I ever fasted in my life, purposefully, uh, I was about 17 years old, 18 years old. I was in college. And my church did what they called a prayer and fasting retreat weekend, which sounds really weird, but I thought it was cool, and I liked a good challenge. I was kind of a new Christian, so I'm like, I'm going to go fast for 72 hours. And it was supposed to be a strict water fast. And so my wife and I were friends at the time, and um, we, I just kind of met her, and um, it was funny how quickly it degenerated into like legalism, right? So like my wife and I were debating as friends, we were debating whether or not chocolate milk was acceptable for the fast. Is that liquid or not? I don't, okay, what brand of chocolate milk? Is it organic or not? Like, you know, how much like fat is in there? And it was just so funny. The retreat became this competition to like outdo one another and who could be the most humble and austere in our 72 hours. And at the very end, to cap off all the debauchery of this prayer and fasting retreat, I went to Shoney's breakfast bar and completely just indulged myself which is a terrible thing to do when your stomach's been restricted for 72 hours. You get real, you feel worse than you do on the front end and you gain all kinds of weight and it's just not really good for you. And so I wondered like, is prayer and fasting really good for you? And like, yes, but just realize you're gonna fail, right? And if you just know that going in, there's just a freedom of going, yeah, I'm going to stink at this at first and I've got to kind of experiment my way into what it looks like to, to, to offer this up to God as something that could be healthy so Jesus fasted. Jesus assumes we're going to fast. And then he gives us some reasons. The Bible gives us some reasons for why we fast. And I just want to mention one. I'll mention all four of these because this will be the subject of our teaching over the next couple weeks. But I just want to mention one in particular this morning as we get ready to close. Um, four main reasons. There's all kinds of reasons, but four main reasons why people fasted in the Bible. The first um, is that it was a response to God in the midst of life's sacred moments. It was the only way that people knew how to express life in a broken world, life in these sacred moments. The second one, we'll talk about this next week, is that it brought about freedom for their bodies. Right? Like oftentimes we don't fast because we have significant, particularly in the West, significant body image issues. We have significant distortions and distorted perspectives in how we see our bodies, either diminishing the importance of the body for a lot of Christians, or maybe in non-religious uh, context, it's overemphasizing the importance, exaggerating the importance of our bodies. Both are ditches that we must avoid, but we must come to terms with our bodies and see how fasting can be a benefit to us as we seek to align and reorient our bodies to the kingdom of God, right? Third uh, reason, and we'll talk about this the third week, is solidarity with the poor. Isaiah 58 specifically talks about 
how fasting can degenerate into injustice and how it can be a way, a pathway to show us how to, how to show true solidarity with the poor. And then finally, uh, to deepen our hunger for God and for his kingdom. We'll talk about feasting the last week. But the one I just want to hit for just a moment here is what I believe is the primary way that fasting is, is seen in the Bible. Fasting is a response to God in life's sacred moments. And I just want to warn you, because I see this as probably the primary difference between biblical fasting and non-religious fasting. Most non-religious fasting is done to get a result, right? You wouldn't do it otherwise. It's done to get an outcome. It is done for a benefit. It says, if you fast, you will get fill in the blank. You will get skinny, you will conform to our culture's, you know, kind of uh, stereotypical idea of beautiful, you know, you will get these health benefits. And again, I'm not saying those things aren't real, but I'm saying biblical fasting rejects that outright as the motivation for why you fast. It will not sustain true fasting, because there's going to be a lot of times when you fast and you don't get answers. Like David fasted that his son would live and he died. If you're only in it for the benefits, fasting dies right there. Right? So the biblical fasting says, when this happens, I seek to align my whole person with God. This is the only way I can communicate the deep desires that I have, the deep longings that I have, the deep disappointments and frustrations that I have. Life in a fallen world, I must fast. So fasting in the Bible is not to get something from God, but it is a response to these sacred moments. It's the only appropriate response, right, to align our stomachs with our hearts and our spirits. That is fasting in the Bible. And we see that throughout. People fasted both privately and corporately in these sacred moments of life. You know what I mean by a sacred moment? Just like something kind of unexpected, an interruption, a disruption in your life where you just get disoriented. And I don't know if you know what that, if you're old enough to know what that feels like. Some of you might be. Like in the Bible, people fasted in times of repentance. In the book of Joel and Jonah, for instance, they realized the gravity of their sin, and for the first time, they're like, oh my gosh, I've sinned against a holy God. I didn't even know there was such a thing as sin in the book of Jonah. And they fast for 40 days. God is going to destroy them, and all of a sudden, he decides to divert his wrath and anger because of their fasting. It's the response of an awareness of our sin. Oftentimes in the Bible, fasting is connected with repentance because it says this sin is so disgusting, this sin is so damaging, it is so destructive to myself and to others that I need to feel that in my guts. Literally, the word on Yom Kippur was, um, God says, deny yourself, afflict your throat is is the idea there because that's how damaging sin is. People would fast in times of sickness. We talked about David. People fasted in times of infertility, right? See that in Hannah in 2 Samuel chapter 1. They would fast in times of death to express their grief and their mourning. In times of national injustice, right? Esther calls a national fast because of the injustice of the king and Haman, right? And the plot that was happening. They fast when there's a longing for God's kingdom to come. I think of one of the greatest examples of fasting that almost nobody knows about in the Bible is Anna. Right? Her husband dies and she spends like 60 years of her life in the temple praying and fasting for the coming of the Messiah and just worshiping God. And she gets to see the Messiah in her lifetime. What an example. In the book of Acts, we see that people fasted for the advancing of God's mission. Right? The people gathered together and they prayed and they worshiped and they fasted. And it's amazing. You know what happened in the book of Acts? It says, 
the word of God spread and grew, and the joy of the disciples multiplied. This is not about austerity and just beating our bodies and being holier than thou and legalistic. This is about joy. It's about responding to God's presence in such a way that creates a deep joy. One pastor says something along the lines of, sometimes our strongest desires are not our deepest desires. It pushes beneath our, what feel like our strongest desires to our deepest desires and longings, which are for God and his kingdom. And fasting dials us in because it says it would be like sacrilegious in this moment to do anything other than fast. It would be inappropriate in this moment to do anything other than fast. I need to enter into and feel, like feel, the intensity of this moment so that I can enter into the presence of God and receive his comfort. We settle for lesser comforts all of the time when life gets hard and the stress ramps up. And so I want to enter in and feel how God feels. I want to see how God sees. I want to receive the comfort that only comes from God. Now, the question for all of us then is, why don't we do that? Why isn't fasting our natural response to life with God in a broken world? Maybe I'll just say it for me. Why is it not for me? Maybe it is for you guys are way more spiritual than me. I think, for me at least, we have learned strategies for coping with stress and anxiety and intensity in life. And they don't involve a whole person turning towards God. At least for me, it's instead of turning to God and really feeling what's happening and responding honestly with God through fasting, what I want to do is I want to numb pain. I want to blame other people for my pain. I want to hide from the reality of my pain. I want to distract myself from my pain. And fasting more than anything else is going to do this for you. It will reveal those dependencies that you've grown accustomed to. Those places and wells that you go to receive comfort for yourself instead of turning to God. Richard Foster says it like this, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. Now, I know this is not you, but let's just say for your friend for your cousin, for your neighbor, for that person you're going to go say, you should really listen to this message, okay? What is it for you? What is the dependency for you? What is your natural response for comfort when life cranks up the intensity? I have a few that I just want to list out, and maybe this will resonate with some of you. Maybe for some of you, it's just a glass of wine to take the edge off, right? You get to the end of a long, stressful day, you're a young mom, you know, life's crazy, and it's like, you know what? I, I cannot wait for my, it's like my wine, and it's in a special place. It's in like a golden box, break glass with a hammer. It's like, this is it. I just need to take the edge off. Don't deprive me of my wine. Maybe for others of you, it's pills. Maybe for some, it's, it's planning. Like you get, when you get stressed, you plan, and you plan getaways and trips, and you fill up your social calendar with all kinds of meetings because that means you don't have to come face-to-face with yourself. Maybe it's late-night food binge. Maybe it's a novel. You withdraw and you read and you detach. Maybe it's exercise. You go into hyper-exercise mode and you hit the gym twice a day instead of uh, once a day. Is it productivity? You go into the office earlier and you stay later. You don't even know why you're doing it. It's just your natural autopilot response to stress. 
Maybe some of you power up and you're like, I'm going I'm to smash this thing in the face, right? And you energy up and you think that you can have the willpower to come back at life. Maybe for some of you, it's sex or pornography, right? And that's the way that you kind of cope with stress. Or you get into a new relationship and you find yourself moving in and out of new dating relationships on the cycles of stress. I dare you to look back over your last like six relationships and see. Maybe you check out using mindless Netflix documentaries or social media. Maybe it's helping people and getting involved with poverty, right? Like here's my point. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those activities, But when they are used to distract, when they are used to dull, when they are used to disengage from or comfort the ache that only God can comfort and lead us back to him, they become problematic. They become idolatrous. That's why we all love Jim Gaffigan. He just like nails it. Every food joke is like talking exactly about this. If you, if you want to check out a good bit, his thing on McDonald's is just wonderful. I just, I just love it. We all have McDonald's, he says. We all, we all have these things in our lives that we focus on, that we dial into, and we use to dull the pain of life. John Piper says, the greatest em- enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. The pleasures of life and the desires for other things are not evil in themselves. They are not vices. They are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. So don't hear me say those things are bad. Just hear me say and ask the question, Why do you go to those things? When do you go to those things? Do you seek comfort in those things rather than turning yourself to God, opening yourself to God, and desiring to feast on the presence of God? Fasting will dial you into those in about two hours. I just want us to be aware of and to see the potentials for fasting. Right? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we had two uh, babies in our church die. Uh, we had one baby in our church that went into the NICU. Um, in the midst of that season, with so much confusion, so much just, what do we do, God? What's going on? Uh, one of these couples from some Northwest just sends a, sends a note out to people and says, hey, would you join us in fasting? The baby had a brain bleed. The doctors were uncertain if he was going to live. And they said, hey, could we as a church just fast together? because we need people to come alongside of us and feel this pain, but to feel it with God. We don't want to be bitter. We want to feel this pain with God, and we just want to respond to God together as a community. Church gathered together in a day of prayer and fasting. Now, miraculously, and God sometimes does this, God answered their prayer. They went back into the doctor the next day, and the affliction was completely gone, completely healed. The doctor literally said, it was one of those, the doctor said, I don't know what happened. I can't explain those kind of things. Now, Sometimes you fast like that and that happens. And sometimes these other two families, we hold a funeral here. My point is, all of this is a sacred opportunity to bring our hearts before God. And say, God, we need you. God, we can only depend on you. God, we want to feast in your presence. That's the kind of church I want to be. In the fu- I-, I want us to be. I long for myself, for us, to step into that kind of awareness, that kind of attunement to the heart of God to respond with our whole bodies, not just our minds, not just our feelings, but our whole person attuned to the reality of God 
he's with us. He has not abandoned us. And he's inviting us to feast on himself. Basil, a fourth century church father, says it like this in a sermon on fasting. Fasting gives birth to prophets. She strengthens the powerful. Fasting makes lawmakers wise. She is a safeguard of a soul, a stabilizing companion to the body, a weapon for the brave, a discipline for champions. Fasting knocks over temptations, anoints for godliness. She is a companion for sobriety, the crafter of a sound mind. In war, she fights bravely. In peace, she teaches tranquility. She sanctifies the Nazarite, and she perfects the priest. Man, I want to live into this vision that God offers for me. So I'll just ask you as we close, what is your invitation? What is God stirring up in your heart right now? This is not a command, do this or else. It's not a threat. God's not going to love you any more or any less if you fast or don't fast. But what is stirring up in your heart? I just want you to pay attention to your heart. What is bubbling up? What invitation might God be giving to you? Fasting is an opportunity to say no to these lesser and legitimate desires and activities in order to say a bigger yes to the greater reality of God's presence in the midst of the joys and the sorrows of life. It is not something we do to get something from God. It is something we do with God and for his glory. It is participation in the life of God. It is learning to care about the things that are on the heart of God. That's what it means to be a disciple, is I'm in tune with the heart of God, and I care about what he cares about, and fasting has the potential to do that in our lives. So I want to encourage you to experiment this week with it experiment with the practice. We have a whole website, the next slide. We have a website dedicated to helping you do this. If you go to somaitany.com, we have all kinds of ways that you can do this. We have resources on there. I would highly recommend this little book on fasting by Scott McKnight. In my opinion, the best book out there on what fasting looks like. You can pick this up. We have recommendations on our website, but I want to encourage you to do it together. We have practice guides that you can download. We want to do this together as a community, and I just want to give one just warning uh, as I say that. Also, I know that many of us in this community also struggle with body image. And I know that there are many of us that struggle with eating disorders, and there are some of us that struggle with food in different kind of medical ways. And I want to encourage you, um, uh, fasting may not be for you right now, and that's okay. This is not about shaming you. This is not about guilting you. There are pregnant women that like can't fast. There are teenagers that shouldn't fast developmentally, like doctors will tell us. There's reasons why you shouldn't. So I want to encourage you, like do this with wisdom. Feel no shame. Maybe for you, a partial fast, if that's you, is the way you take a category and you fast from that and you join with the rest of us in a spirit of fasting. Again, I don't want to create a legalism. I want to just say, what is God inviting you to uh, do this week and how is he inviting you to experience him in the midst and respond to him in the midst of the joys and the sorrows of life. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. Father, I thank you for this invitation to wholeness. Thank you for the example of Jesus and how he invites us to, to consider our relationship with our bodies, to consider our relationship with food, and what that might be telling us about our true hungers, our true and deepest desires. God, help us to consider and to be stirred up with your grace, to see that this is not about adhering to religious rules. This is about encountering you. This is about experiencing you in a deeper way. So God, teach us what it looks like as a community to temporarily suspend our hunger for things that don't ultimately satisfy and to affix our hopes, longings, desires, and dreams on you and to feast truly and fully on your presence together inviting you to come in and to fill us 
once again because we desperately need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.